Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And this week's show is incredibly on point in that regard. My guest is Amanda Carpenter, who you may know from her frequent appearances on CNN as a reasonable conservative. She also has written a book called Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. And from those two pieces of information alone, you may have gathered that she is a never Trumper, whatever that means. She and I actually kind of get into how that that really doesn't mean much. And neither does the term reasonable conservative, for that matter. For a long time in Washington, reasonable conservative has just been journalistic speak for conservative that I like. And indeed, Amanda is a conservative that I like. But it becomes clear in our conversation that she and I had never really talked politics before. Not enough to find out how much we disagreed, at least. Our conversation tests the limits of what the never-Trump shared goodwill can support. There is a place in this conversation where progressive listeners will be disappointed in me. I won't talk too much more about it. Instead, I'll get straight to the conversation. Here is Amanda Carpenter. Amanda. Hello. <laughs> we are back in the Star Wars set of um, the studio in Washington where we tape when I am here. So we've known each other for a very long time. Very long time in Washington terms, which I think means like at least two election cycles. Yeah, at yeah. least. I th- think I think I first met you when you were broadcasting from Center for American Progress. And it was a show with me, you, and Chris Hayes. Yes. I was the token conservative. And even then you weren't like, (laughs) well, actually, you know what? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about whether or not you're super conservative. Because you're actually, I think, one of those people that that liberal journalists like. And so they try to describe you as not that conservative. But I don't, are you, is that true? I mean, I'm pretty conservative. Yeah, but I don't, I guess what makes me different is that I've never abided by the party line. I've never made it my goal professionally to defend the party or other conservatives or shield them from criticism. Um, In fact, I feel most passionately about um, criticizing members of the Republican Party because I expect them to represent me well. Mm -hmm. And quite frequently, they fall short. (laughs) And that gets us maybe to what I actually planned on being the first question, which is uh, in the new Washington alignment— like, where do you see yourself? Like, I, I feel like we almost need to retire the term never Trump because, hey, mm-hmm. there's Trump, yeah. right? So he's there. Uh-huh. 
Um, but maybe that is a good coalition name. But where could you kind of see yourself? I mean, I guess I, I always feel like I've been on the outside as a conservative voice. I came to Washington in 2005 at the tail end of the Bush administration um, when people were really upset about spending, kind of questioning what we're doing in Iraq. So that's always been where I've been. So I'm very comfortable criticizing Trump when he needs to be because I've never had to professionally, you know, work for the president or do anything like that. So I, I'm where I have always been. You know, I worked for Senators Jim DeMint and Ted Cruz. About which um, I will have questions. Right. Yes. People that, yeah. you know, challenge the establishment. So that's one way of, of framing it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so it doesn't feel that different to me. The never Trump thing is an interesting question. I staked out my position as a never-Trumper, I think in March 2015, where I didn't even think that was a phrase yet. But my take at that time, I wrote a piece for um, a publication called Conservative Review saying it's time to make a list of all the elected officials that had endorsed Trump. Because in my view, nobody should ever work for those officials or give— um, their judgment credence because they made a decision to endorse Trump. And that was so, like, why would you do that given all his statements? And so that was kind of how I became never Trump in encouraging people, don't work for these politicians, don't lend them your support. You know, they've crossed the line. And of course, many more people. Did you say 2015? 2015. Wow. All right. Yeah, that's when he was talking about, you know, he said the John McCain stuff, not a war hero. Um, eminent domain was an issue for me. It still is. But really what pushed me over the line was when he started talking about how members of the U.S. military should adopt ISIS-like tactics. And he was sort oh, yeah. of embracing torture. Isn't it amazing? Like, we can yes. be like, oh, yeah, that outrageous thing yeah. that would have sunk anyone's career that we barely remember. <laughs> yeah. You know, my brother <laughs> served in the Marine Corps. And to me, for someone, a candidate to make a statement like that, in my mind, should never become commander-in-chief because you don't have an understanding of what that means. Or if you do, that's even more alarming. And so, you know, the first two people, elected officials that endorsed Trump were Chris Collins and Duncan Hunter, um, who obviously, (laughs) I think they have distinction of being members of Congress under indictment and winning their elections. So maybe that was a signal of things to come. But that that's kind of where I took that position, and I've, I've stayed there. And are you surprised at how the conservative movement has split? Yes, and And then, re, no. and then I should say it's split and then somewhat knitted back together. Mm-hmm. Because there's the never-Trump people. Which are—they're not very many of us. I mean, very few people even have to, like, take this position, and it is— Largely people who work in the media as conservative voices. Yeah. Because, like, there's this big debate. Like, Never Trump is just a bunch of media personalities. Like, well, yeah, a little bit because media people are the ones forced to opine about all things that Trump does. Most voters never have to do that, right? They can say, oh, I hate Trump's tweets, but they're going to go vote for him. And that's easy to do because you never have to answer for the things that he does. And so if you want to be, because like, there's a big difference between people like me, you know, and people on air who have made it their goal to always defend the president. So there's, to me, there's never Trump. There's always Trump. 
and not much else. I think there's a category of, of that I sometimes call like the never never Trumpers, which is like the people that were never Trump and have sort of like put tentacles out across <laughs> the divide. Do we, have, do we have names? I'm trying to think. The name that I I I, I feel like I can name um, and not get in trouble uh, is actually the person I appear with on left, right, and center, but Rich Lowry, editor of the National oh. Review. Yeah, I can see that. There's been, yeah, some National Review types. I mean, jo- I think Jonah Goldberg is probably the only one that stayed always where he has been. David French probably. He stayed kind of always where he's ever uh-huh. been. Yeah. But other people, you know, once he becomes president, there's a lot of pressure for people to come back into the fold. Are you surprised by the, some of any any friends or colleagues that wound up supporting Trump? Ted Cruz? (laughs) 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 Yeah. Poor fucking, poor guy. I do still, like, I don't. I don't know how you walk back that speech, but he did, so. No, okay. And it was necessary. I understand the political calculation of it. Texas voters. So how much can we say, like, on, on the record, right? I can say with confidence that Ted Cruz is, opinion or attitude about his relationship with Trump is that he has never explicitly like said the opposite of what he said in his convention speech. Right. (laughs) So, and if you look at what he said, he has, and this is just true and he will point it out to anyone who asks, which is Mm -hmm. that he, um, when he does talk about the president, he does not talk about the president in terms of his character and his personal character or his personal attributes he talks a lot about specific— Confirming judges. Yep. He, he talks about specific mm-hmm. actions, and he talks about the president's base. Yeah. And he talks about his supporters. And he will laud the supporters, like, to the to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of elected officials are in this position, Cruz exceptionally so because of his convention speech. But Republican voters on the ground don't want to see the infighting within the Republican— family, right? Like, they are so annoyed by Jeff Flake and Bob Corker because, in their view, the Democrats attack Trump, the media attacks Trump. We don't need anybody else doing that. Why no. don't you get on board and help? And we should say, mm-hmm. that, but you, because you know this as well as anybody, which is that that is a shrinking pie right there, that um, the Republican Party is losing oh, people sure. who identify themselves as Republicans yeah. because of Trump. That means and they're taking the, a bath with Republican women. Which is, I, I really do want to talk to you about that <laughs> specifically, because you are that person mm-hmm. that they're losing. And you lost, you were gone early, but I would love your insight on that. I was ahead of the times. Yes. <laughs> I mean, no, I did write a piece for the Washington Post um, in October, essentially, you know, after the Access Hollywood tapes came out saying, where are the Republican men to defend women from, you know, this sexist that's running for president? Like, why don't they give them a brushback pitch? Because in my view, you know, we've, a lot of Republican women on the front lines have spent time defending those men from charges of sexism when it comes to policies and things like that. And then you have a guy on the Access Hollywood tapes saying that, and you can't, you can't speak out. And so, or they only speak out on win. specifically Access Hollywood, yeah. which is like, mm-hmm. I mean, no, there's so many, <laughs> there's so many examples. And uh, I've just got to say, I think it's the funniest thing that anytime Trump needs to show like his support for women and female policies, they roll out Ivanka and women on his payroll. 
It's like, could you find someone that doesn't have the last name Trump or you're not paying to say that you're good for women? And they can't. I just, that's something that bothers me slash makes me laugh. <laughs> so I think you've, you've hit on something that I haven't heard articulated in quite the way that you did it, which is that the women um, leaving the Republican Party, uh, college-educated white suburban women for the most part, uh, you being one of those. Example A. Example A. <laughs> Um, you know, it's often assumed that they're leaving because of Trump, that it's Trump that, they, that they're that they're appalled by. But I wonder if there's another story that's maybe not as obvious, which is that they also are responding, whether consciously or, or, or subconsciously, to the fact that they're not being defended by Republican men. Yeah, I, I don't like, know if like, I like, put like, that kind of point on, but there is certainly a chauvinistic attitude that gets expressed from many people in the Trump universe. And that is grating time and time and time again. It's becoming a very sort of hyper male party. And I don't say this, you know, it's the tweets, but it's just the, uh, what what would uh, Secretary Pompeo call it? Swagger? Oh, yeah. Ugh, right? That just makes you cringe. Like, what is that? I did what literally. Dear listener, I did literally cringe. Um, like, swagger? Like, what are you talking, an Old Spice commercial? <laughs> Axe? I don't know. What is it? he actually would make the Old Spice commercial guy, like, the symbol of the Department of State. <laughs> but he's black. So, it's a problem. But shirtless on a guy on a horse? <laughs> I totally see. Maybe Vladimir Putin can be the symbol of oh, the State God. Department. Um, <laughs> but no, the point that I was making is that uh, yes, there's like outright chauvinism that that there that sort of trickle down chauvinism. Yeah. But also, there's very few. There's I I can't think of a single male politician, Republican male po- politician, who has 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 gone after Trump for his sexism in a way that wasn't just I have. A daughter. <laughs> I know. It's, what is that? <laughs> and and like I you... care about how how women are treated because I have a daughter. Like no one's called him out on his sexism. Like they'll talk about maybe like his specific use of some words that mm-hmm. they don't like that we can all agree on. Like, oh, those are bad words you shouldn't use. <laughs> um, but they won't call him out on the way he treats women, which is systematically like he doesn't think women are as important. As men, yeah, I think. Well, I think the reason why everyone runs away from the subject, honestly, yeah. it gets into his marriages. Well, and, right, <laughs> and nobody wants to. Let me tell you what: nobody wants to talk about Melania. This is funny. You'll notice it now that I say she it. Seems I've like noticed me. conservative female writers who don't like Trump but want to show that they are yeah, writing yeah. things supportive of Trump write all about Melania's fashion and how what a great first lady because that's like the way they can try to say something supportive of him but like not really saying anything at all I mean it is it shocking or is it insightful that Melania a former model wears pretty clothes and looks good <laughs> I mean come on but that's it has all this money that she you know yeah. can spend on it um and the time and resource yeah like give me a break so you, two, a couple of things there. One is um, I actually think Melania seems pretty mean. <laughs> like, Oh, she's I a think Trump. She, se- she is she voluntarily seems- a Trump. Yeah. Yes. Let's talk about this because I think this is amazing. <laughs> okay. Totally. 
She seems mean. Like she, the, the stuff that she said in defense of in, de, in defense of Trump has oh, yeah, not just been like the birtherism should have been a clue. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know. And also, like she's like he's a well, he's a, he's a counter puncher. You know, right. whatever she says, no, I, mean, she I, made her, I made him sound like made her sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but she's maybe you know um, she's sort of a Terminator esque. But yeah, she's by choice a Trump, and she signs up for all of this, like the birtherism stuff. Like she's she is a okay with everything he's doing, mm-hmm. and she likes to serve it up in the media. Yeah. She doesn't do it often. But that that jacket she wore, I mean, she ruined, ruined a visit to Texas to go look at what's happening with the migrant children down there because she just wanted to pick a fight. I mean, that is a Do you think that's level. what it was? Like, because it's either idiocy or she knew what she oh, was she doing. Knew what she was, oh, she knew she Oh, come on. I, she absolutely... Where do you even find that jacket? Apparently, I think um, a Zara, and I'm a Zara shopper, I have to say, but um, I never saw it, so... But no, you have yeah. to, like, also Zara is not her price point, right? Like, oh, yeah. That's actually, it was, like... It was totally <laughs> deliberate. And what's who she called for to be fired the other day? Oh, my Did, God. Right? Yeah, that's right. She put out a tweet. Again, like, there's all this stuff that in another world would be in and of itself, like, that mm-hmm. we can barely remember. She wants to remember. send a message, she does it. And then I've also, I think this is right. Um, likes to send messages with her fashion, of course, the pussy bow blouse, um, you know, the white pantsuit. She, like, she picks fights with her husband yeah. in the media. She's, I mean. I, I, don't, I don't know if Melania is a good person. I just feel like, I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, she's voluntarily a Trump, which is the thing you can say about her. And she's still a Trump. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing about the ex-Trumps is that they did at some point decide, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and going to the uncomfortable subjects is what Ivana alleged in her divorce depositions oh, yeah. about the rape. I mean, that's that was all out there. It's still out there. And the fact that, you know, Donald oh, and Trump I believe wasn't I, a father to his children for many years. And I, that disturbs I me believe greatly. I believe the— the it, I think the stories about him assaulting women ring very true. Hey, she's testified under oath. She put it in the papers and then yeah. it got sealed and she got a payout. What does that sound like, Michael Cohen? Yeah. You know, Trump has a history of paying women to go away. Yeah. Well, <sighs> I would say paying women to to come to him and paying women to go away from yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, if you're lucky, you you get both, I guess. Um, but I, I want to come back to sort of a part, this another underlying issue in your in your comment about Melania, which is that conservative women looking for something positive to write about Trump gravitate to Melania. Do you think there's kind of an economy of of in conservative media of people just like trying to figure out how do I? Yes. Yes, there's <laughs> how do I sell I out? How do I sell out in a from, way that's yes, not gonna from the publisher? Like, listen, okay. Generally speaking, you know, it's hard to make money as a publication standalone on a subscription model. So most often, there's somebody that writes a big check um, and expects certain things. I think this has been said and that's in the, the conservative press. model. I have to say, like, it's not always a model. yeah, yeah, like Sinclair Media. Right. There was a purge to give it to people who were not sufficiently on board with Trump. And I think this is exactly right when you watch how some of these talk show hosts have positioned themselves. And I forget which executive it was, but essentially he said, just pretend you are Trump's lawyer and make the best case to listeners that you can. Wait, who said that? It's one of the Sinclair officials. It was in print. And because oh, it's yeah. like, yes, that's exactly what you see. P- people who know Trump is breaking laws. He's— 
just a bad person. Um, but then they'll go on the airwaves and say, well, this and that, and this is, you know, this is just the Democrats pouncing on him. And so they make the case the best they can. And so some of these people that are underwriting these media models, they'll tolerate a certain amount of negative Trump coverage, but they won't tolerate it all the time. They say, go find a way to make the case because your listeners and readers voted for Trump. And essentially, you have to make them feel good about that decision. I want to talk about those listeners and readers, but I think we should probably take a short break. Okay. (laughs) So we're taking a short break. Imagine a workplace with no distractions or disruptions, no endless searching to find the latest version, no constantly switching between apps. Now imagine a place where everything just flows. I'm imagining it. My place is in a workplace, but we're talking about workplaces because that's probably where you need flow the most. And at Dropbox, they are building a home for all of your team's work and the conversations around it with a suite of tools that maximizes inspiration and minimizes distraction. Because when teams are in flow, everything just clicks. Visit dropbox.com forward slash flow. Dropbox, keep teams flowing. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So those Trump supporters that need to be uh, coddled um, the snowflakes that they are. Um, your work in Washington, you know, when you came, you said you were here in 2006? Yeah, I came here summer 2005. Summer yeah. 2005. So. And you worked for Jim DeMint and you mm-hmm. worked for Ted Cruz, Tea Party folks. Mm-hmm. Um, friend of the show, Rick Wilson, friend of the pod, Rick Wilson, has said on the show he has some regrets about how the Tea Party movement unfolded, Hmm. Um, particularly his own part in it, because 
he feels like they did, he, not they, he, helped build a mob. Hmm. Helped create kind of the conditions um, for people to behave like they're behaving now. To um, uh, to the conservative media, to, to, to only listen to conservative media, to not believe anything that's happening in the mainstream media. Um, and also to kind of like uh, see your p- place in history as as like this consolidated, you know, um, racist adjacent. <laughs> okay, I, I disagree with almost all of that. Okay, um, okay. So people have different views of it, but what I saw and what I worked with, the Tea Party movement was a backlash against the bailouts, uh, Bush spending, war. Um, universal health care that was coming with Obama. I don't view that any of that as racist. Now, did I know that there was some racist I said racist elements? adjacent. Yeah, in there, but <laughs> I got to tell you, and I wrote about this in other places, is that that, when I was working for a DeMint, and, you know, like, and also the way they talked this, about it, the way they talked well, about well, some let's of those just go back. There's, I, responsible people beat that back. Nobody ever gave credence to people that opposed Obama because they were racist, right? In my view, the Tea Party was a very pure, almost fiscal movement. There may be some core of it that you can say that about, but well, also— I'm telling you what I saw because I worked with it. But also, I mean, there's two things. One, talk about people writing checks. Like, the Tea Party movement did benefit from— Oh, there's some grifters in it for sure. Well, I would like, say, I, I mean, you know, the gr- yeah, there's a progressive grift too. I I know, but um, I actually was talking about the people funding the Tea Party movement, like people like wrote who? some big t- Americans for Prosperity. Okay, but I mean, what what's nefarious about that? That it wasn't that there was like uh, maybe some kind of core number of people that were genuinely activated by fiscal conservatism, and I think that's the most of it. I the most don't, of it. I mean, as someone, I was I was at many Tea Party events in Washington. The first one was on. Gosh, where was it? It was right outside the White House. Um, I forget. But you but, um, could see right there, even though, like, I went to those events too, and there was already like there was there was you know racist signage. Okay, and there you was. Want, are you talking about the Larouche people that were coming ooh. in? Because I was at events where we pushed people out. With that kind of stuff. No, like the Obama, like the caricature. I know I saw it, but I'm telling you, working with people who are trying to keep that stuff out, they were not welcomed. I've shown them the door at events. And then I think also there is like sort of this policy incoherence, maybe just that eventually happened, which was that like there'd be, you know, don't socialize, um, don't socialize uh, medicine, but, you know, stay away from my Medicare. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, not wanting a new government program doesn't mean that, I mean, I, I understand it's un- inconsistent, but at its core, the Tea Party movement was a constitutional movement focused on limited government and fiscal responsibility. I mean, that's what it was. How did it get so easily hijacked then? Who hijacked it? Well, I mean, I think Ted Cruz is an interesting example. Well, no, no. I mean, I... How did it get hijacked? So this started in what two thousand nine. I actually, I think. Well, actually, I think the thing that's most important about what like Rick's analysis is is the way of thinking about politics, the polarized way of thinking about politics, and the distrust of the mainstream media, and a kind of semi conspiratorial. That was there before. I'm just saying that was there before. 
But the Tea Party movement definitely exacerbated it. There were some specific and maybe it's because of the, who, who got attached to it. But like once, like you know, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Fox News kind of gets attached to it. Like the narrative that they push, because it's good for them. Like it's a it's it's a self interested narrative for Rush Limbaugh to say, "Don't listen to anybody else besides Rush Limbaugh." Oh, sure, but he's been saying that forever. You know, he's been saying that forever. That but wasn't it's like a this confluence. It's like this confluence of like. An issue that galvanizes people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, there was just a lot of anger, pent up anger from the Bush years, and knowing that Obama was going to be coming in, and there was going to be a lot of new liberal policies. And he's black. <sighs> but the Tea Party started before Obama was president, right? <laughs> but the way that they they did it, it came out of the bailout backlash. That's that was the defining moment. It wasn't. I would actually say that that's like the defining. That's where it got its name, literally. But I don't know if it's the defining moment. Oh, I, th- I think it definitely was. I think that once once Bush did that, and it was it John McCain to gain and momentum. Obama went to Washington, and everybody knew that this was going to happen. That's when the floodgates burst. I think that the. I'm just telling. I mean, as a conservative in the media, very close with a lot of the people th- that were key in organizing it, I was there. I know you were there, yeah. but I'm not—I actually feel like almost it's its not the people that you were necessarily working with that are the problem. Because let's okay. go back to the Trump voters, because I, I am okay. willing to bet— Well, I think— That those those Trump voters that need that now really need to be reassured, mm-hmm. I bet they would identify as Tea Party conservatives. Yeah, it's, it's a little different. The overlap is pretty curious. I mean, okay, I, mean I know get, I know they're different to you because mm-hmm. you your because your argument is that the Tea Party was all about well, fiscal I think they conservatism. I think they quit caring about norms in the Constitution, and it all just became we're fed up. I'm this is what mine. I'm saying yeah. is I think is is where the through line is uh-huh. is like the paranoia, the the anger, the like feeling of like yeah we need you know we're just. You know, the the grievance, mm-hmm. the sense totally. of grievance. But let me just point one thing out that I think is important. The Tea Party movement in 2009 helped Republicans win elections in 2010. People like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul beating the establishment, coming in. And still, where this went haywire is official Republican Washington was not listening to what the voters kept saying over and over. I mean, Mitch McConnell shut them out any way possible. And there is a backlash. And finally they said, you know, it's like, we tried playing nice, gave you Ted Cruz, you're not going to listen to him, have Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. (laughs) I mean, Ted Cruz actually... If only we had accepted Ted Cruz, then we wouldn't have Trump. I don't know about that. (laughs) But it's not just accepting Ted Cruz. I mean, there was candidates that came in with him, the Rand Pauls, and they didn't get anywhere in Washington because there was still no acceptance of the anger that was out there in America. Now, do you think that be, but that's not what happened in the Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus has morphed pretty, pretty seamlessly from a Tea Party caucus yeah. to the to the Trump caucus. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what's up with that? I think people just, they quit caring. This is our guy. We're doing this. And do you think there, that there's nothing that, I mean, to me, so again, I think this is, Rick's analysis, but I do agree with it, that there's something about the way that people um, in his field, like the Republican dark arts, the way that they messaged and advertised and, you know, massaged, um, you know, uh, the narrative, he feels like— Well, yeah, he was doing that stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's be clear. I was not doing that stuff. And I wouldn't. Right. So there's a difference there. So he can own up to stuff that he did. Right. Go ahead, buddy. Okay. You know, I, fe- I feel very confident that I did my best to keep people on the straight and narrow at every turn. He can't say that. That's true. So what did happen with Ted Cruz? What do you mean? Why do you lose? No. Um, what do you think happened with him and Trump? I think he went to the convention. I mean, he blew it up. Blew it up. And this has been reported. It's not any secret. Like, speaking of, like, Tea Party people who he's d- Yeah, definitely... the Tea Party people in Texas turned into Trump people yeah. pretty seamlessly. And yeah. he had to find a way to convey to those voters that he is no longer a threat to Trump. The Trump people were very concerned about Ted through the convention, through the delegate fight, which there was some pretty good floor action um, that happened there and trying to at least get a roll call vote. And Cruz essentially had to say, I'm not a threat to you anymore. I'm a Texas senator. I'm going to work together. I'm not going to take back what I said. That's right. Very clear. (laughs) You know, if you get the judges confirmed, that's what Texas voters want. And so I listen. People tell me all the time, and it's probably one of the questions I get the most, you know, in the green rooms, how could Ted go to dinner with them? How, how could he bring his wife to that dinner? I said, you got to understand, I, I don't think I could do it. Not a politician, but he has to represent Texas. And you can't be on bad terms with the Republican president as a senator from Texas. And I will say this, as a Republican senator from Texas, were he to somehow communicate to the president that he was dissatisfied, mm-hmm. I mean, Trump would go to town. Yeah, I, although I don't, I, mean, think, like, I don't think Trump could do anything worse. Well, he than just what but he, he could just election. keep he could just keep going. Yeah, and that would probably cost Cruz a Senate seat. Yeah, had that have happened. Yeah, like, and Cruz is smart. I mean, he's very you know, he, <laughs> the problem he knows with Ted this. Cruz. The problem with Ted Cruz is not that he's not smart. <laughs> That problem with Ted Cruz is that he's smart. Yeah. <laughs> so um, your book is called Gaslighting America. Why we love it when Trump lies. That's right. Uh, it was sort of pitched in an di- interesting way. It wasn't kind of the, it wasn't a never Trump creed de corps like mm-hmm. um, our dear friend Rick and Max Boot have written. Mm-hmm. It was more of an attempt to explain Yeah, I mean, because I don't think what he does is all that original, but he has, there's a method to it. And I just, maybe it's because I've experienced it so closely or I've observed it. He just keeps doing the same stuff over and over. Trafficking conspiracies, you know, picks up a narrative that's laying around. He pushes it out there. He asks questions. He promises more information is coming. And then eventually he finds a way to declare victory. And we've seen this story so many times. So I just wanted to break it down because... I don't want it to work anymore. I don't want it to work anymore. And it's the way that he spreads lies is extremely effective. It dominates media coverage. It destroys his enemies. And rather than sit and wring my hands about how sad I am that Trump lies, I just wanted to break it down in hopes that this won't work again. But... Okay, well, so do, do, I mean, can you do any breaking down for us now? Yeah, 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 we could do. I mean, the, the textbook example is birtherism. Right. Right. Trump didn't come up with birtherism. 
That was out there. It was around. Trump started bringing it up during Obama's second term after, you know, this has largely been asked and answered. But he started to, he claimed the narrative. And this is what he does a lot. He doesn't come up with these things. He knows it's out there. Well, this is what's crazy about the Trump Fox feedback loop. Uh Uh-huh. Is that. There's a, or I'd even say Reddit threats. Like, this stuff, Fox yeah. won't even touch most of the time. Yeah, I wonder how he gets that stuff. It's the really— Don the Reddit. Yeah. Yes. So he sees, like, okay, I think he knows. All right. So that's the first. He finds something that no one else will touch, but has a lot of market value. People want to learn about. And then— Well, and it also that plays—I mean, I have to say, and also usually plays into some existing grievance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so a current one might be caravan-related stuff. Yep. Yeah, he didn't come up the caravan, but he jumped on it. He jumped on it. And then that, that they're getting new cars, mm-hmm. that they're bringing diseases. Like, that stuff, again, what is insane to sort of ponder is those were outright lies said at rallies to thousands of people. And yet there's like kind of this paralysis that happens in the response to it by people who are critical because it's like you just can't. How do you even Mm -hmm. how do you even begin? That's why we avoid the LaRouche people. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. why we don't engage with them. Yep. Yep. That's why when you see someone ranting on a street corner, you don't try and argue with them. But Trump is the ranter on the street corner in the Oval Office. Yeah. So we that's the thing. And I kind of. People say, what do we do? Trump is not going away. Actually, Trump is never going away. He's president. He will always have been a president. People think, oh, in four years, he's going to go away. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's going to go run Fox News or he's going to start Trump TV. He is going to be a facet of our lives forever. And so you do have to kind of accept that rather than saying, oh, when is this going to be over? You just got to contain it and mitigate it. Because otherwise, you'll just drive yourself crazy. So in terms of his gaslighting, the first thing he does is, is find these narratives. But then there's a step that he does all the time. And I just I don't know why anybody falls for it anymore. I call it advance and deny, where he just kind of says, well, I'm just asking questions right. about birtherism. Like, no, you're not. You're a presidential candidate. You're not raising questions. You're making it a topic. And But he denies any responsibility. And he just, he did this with the Russia stuff. Well, maybe I fired Comey because of Russia. Maybe not. Um, well hmm, really that is how he tests out new material yes he tests who's gonna bite but I'm not I'm not really saying this but I'm gonna make it the top topic of conversation like Daniel Dale who's invaluable Uh Twitter resource uh has documented this over time where he'll mention something in a speech as a question yep yep and then it'll turn into a fact like over the course of like uh huh yeah, he'll say other people are saying. Yeah. yeah, that's one of his favorites. Many people. Yes. Many and so people. when it came to birtherism, Trump did a whole like six-week media tour where I'm just I'm just asking questions. Right. People say you're crazy if you ask questions. Well, yeah, because you just went on Fox and Friends and talked about <laughs> birtherism. But okay. Um, and then when he gets in trouble on this, once people start to pen him in, he creates suspense. He says, you wait. I have a team of investigators going to Hawaii, and they'll produce a report in two weeks. 
He always does that. And that keeps the media strung along for another couple of weeks. And this is another in- invaluable Daniel Dale thing. He'll often say, I have something coming. Yep. In like two weeks, two weeks, I think is two weeks is his, his favorite. Is, yeah. Because <laughs> then, you know, like we're all stupid, like ADD media people and like we forget. Two weeks is a kind of ideal amount of time in this day and age for someone to forget. Like uh-huh. two weeks is like, well, it can't, it won't be on the Sunday shows because it's two weeks from now. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, the voter fraud investigations coming. Right, right. Never comes, never comes. And then eventually, once everyone gets sick of this, and it does happen, it did happen with birtherism, people— you know, the Republican Party, even then, eventually said, you have to put this to a rest. So he does a big press conference. And what's he do? Hillary Clinton started it, but I finished it. I got Barack Obama to release the certificate. And therefore, this is a huge victory for me. What? <laughs> He'll always declare victory. No matter what. Yeah. I put this matter to a rest. And so that those are the kind of steps and you can see it play out with Russia. You can see it play out with the voter fraud. You can, it just happens all the time. Yeah. And he's good at it. I mean, he was a success in the New York tabloids by doing this stuff. He knows how to string the media along, create a story, create interest, dominate headlines, and emerge as the victor no matter what the circumstances are. I think the title of your book is interesting. Gaslighting America. Mm-hmm. That term has gotten uh, sort of renewed attention, I feel like, yeah. in the past few years because of Trump, in a specifically feminist context. Yes. Yeah. And is that intentional yeah, that on of, your yeah, part? Yeah, a little bit, just because <sighs> I tell the story in the book about Martha Mitchell. Do you know who she is? Yeah, a, I do. A lot I know of people who actually, the slow I, burn. Hey, I, listened, I listened to Slow Burn. I know who she is. She was the wife of... Uh, John Mitchell. John Mitchell. AG, campaign manager. And I I just got fascinated with her story because she was maybe a little Sarah Palin-like. Like, they would put her out and she'd do the speaking circuit stuff. She was very vivacious, funny. People liked her. Kind of a big, big, big personality. And, and she then, would say kind of semi-outrageous things. Like, kind yes. of like, not, not totally serious, but funny and yeah people yeah. people liked her Sarah Palin is actually kind of a good I think she seems a little bit more on the ball than Sarah Palin mm, yeah maybe but I don't know I didn't see her on live tv but it's true that's true <laughs> again I just listened to slow burn so anyway yeah and so through Watergate she's at in California doing a fundraiser um and Watergate it goes down that weekend and her husband kind of gets whisked away, and they'd say, keep the papers away from Martha. Because she talks. She called reporters all the time. She'd get drunk and call them up. All, like, <laughs> not, not the most trustworthy person. Right. And she kind of, her husband goes back to Washington to deal with Watergate, and she finds herself sequestered in this hotel room. And she starts to call people, and people come in and essentially keep her in this room, lock her up. And, of course, she's kind of raging, drinking a little bit. They sedated her, put a tranquilizer in her ass, knocked her out, and then she came back and wanted to tell—like, she was trying to call Helen Thomas, who was with the White House Press Corps, and Helen Thomas called her husband, and her husband was like, don't worry about her. She has crazy stories. And there was a—then a campaign started to say that she was crazy. I mean, she got gaslit completely. She had a story to tell. She knew something was going. She may not have known everything. And even now, like Carl Bernstein, I've, I've asked him, I said, what did she know about Martha Mitchell? And he doesn't think she knew anything. But 
She knew something. She knew she something. knew that they were covering up. She and knew there they was a cover They tranquilized her and kept her in a hotel room. Yeah. What? If and then else, she, she became the monster? Mm. And so that kind of stuck with me because she, to me and like all this dirty tricks, yucky political stuff, she was gaslit. I think Monica Lewinsky, we fully understand, was gaslit. You know, being depicted as a floozy. I mean, my God, the president was her boyfriend for quite a long time. Gave her gifts. And so this concept of how women get gaslit um, was very intriguing to me. And I... I identified a little bit because I had the unique experience of the National Enquirer um, accusing me essentially of having an affair with Ted Cruz, which of course never happened. And I was confronted live on the air at CNN by a Trump supporter over that. And I was I was gaslit on live TV. I was p- fully immersed in this alternate reality, and I had to fight my way out of it. And none of it, not a bit of it, was true. And I think that's a uniquely female experience. And I didn't even really, I was so like, I had to do an interview with Jake Tapper to clear it up on the air after that happened. And he said, and it didn't click with me. I didn't think it. He said, this wouldn't have happened if you were a man. I'm like, yeah, that's true. That is true. The National Enquirer wouldn't have accused me of having an affair with my boss if I were a man. And now we know so much more about how closely linked the National Enquirer was to yeah. the Trump campaign through Roger Stone, which will continue to well, be just through, unfolded. And through David Pecker. I mean, like, yes. just, like there's not even— But nobody Roger knew Stone that Roger Stone doesn't even time. need to be a part of it. Like, yeah, it, they just put a barely blurred-out photo of me on the cover and let the internet go wild. I mean, that sucked. You know, there's another aspect of it about how it happens. To, it, it can only happen to a woman. Um, not only, but how women have this particular issue with gaslighting. Um, that— I feel like some conservatives don't like this particular narrative, but I'll say it anyway, which is that women are so um, socialized to doubt themselves. Like, that's the real power of gaslighting for me, Mm. is that, so I've been in relationships where there's been emotional abuse. And the thing that happens, that happened, was that I would start to wonder if what was real like mm-hmm. i would know what i had done yep. or didn't do yep but the guy the you know my partner was so sure like his his arguments mm-hmm. and his like yep. what he was telling me was so like right you you second guess yourself yeah uh-huh and that's something that men are not as like they don't do as much like women like we are just you know culture tells us we're the ones that need to accommodate others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So well, the thing that was very weird when I got accused of having an affair I didn't have, I had to then go investigate my life to find ways where maybe somebody could think that was true. It's like that's also that's like that's and that was like so it, it still bends my mind that I have yeah. to think like, well, how could somebody say this? How could they reasonably? Maybe think this is true. Like, was there a photo? Was there a picture? And, like, I'd have people ask me, were you ever in an elevator with Ted Cruz? At no. Like, I had to think of every scenario possible because of someone that just threw me into this thing. And, and like, you ever- all the mental work of, like, me going through my schedule. Like, I knew I was never alone with him, ever. But, you know, where could somebody maybe mistake me for someone else? Like, it was really just insanity. And I—, I- I don't like the genre of 
of jokes about Ted Cruz that have to do with his appearance. I, I just I just show people pictures of my husband. And they usually understand. Okay, he's quite good. good looking. You know what? We don't have to make jokes about <laughs> Ted Cruz's appearance. We'll just be like, my yeah. husband is really good looking. Okay, the there. Way. Yeah, <laughs> and nice and perfect. And there's anyone that knows me knows there's no way, um, because they know of my relationship with my husband, and that's that. And on that note, we'll take a quick break. Third love, they sell bras and underwear. And I remember when I first got a third love ad for this show and I recorded it, I recorded the ad and in the ad, I said something about how this is uh, an ad read that the guys will never do because it's, it's for girls. And I got an email from someone reminding me that um, not everyone who wears a bra identifies as a girl or a woman. And I remember wanting to laugh at that email. But then I thought, you know what? If one person feels better about themselves because I am able to acknowledge gender fluidity in a bra ad, then I think I'm going to do it. And I did. And ever since then, I've really treasured the emails I get from people who are non-gender conforming, who write to me to tell me that third love has changed their lives because you don't have to go to get fitted. You can just do the fitting through a quiz that they have on the website and the bras come in there gorgeous or sporty, depending on what you want, what goes with your personality. Most of all, they're comfortable and they're, they're made for whoever you are. And since it's all done online, you can forget about sifting through racks of bras at the store and dealing with awkward fitting room experiences. Hands down, Third Love is the most comfortable bra you'll ever know, and you'll feel comfortable getting it. It has tagless labels, no itching, straps that won't slip, ultra-smoothing fabrics, and lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups. Just find your fit, order, try it on at home. If you don't love your bra, returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love has also recently launched their most requested style they didn't already have, which is cotton t-shirt bras and cotton underwear. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com friends now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com friends for 15% off today. All right, we're back. And I only have one kind of round of questions or general subject to ask you about, which is that uh, while you are purely conservative— you're definitely a conservative. There is another way in which you have like crossed aisles, which is you've been both a staffer mm-hmm. and a journalist. Yes. What? Okay. First of all, who do you feel the most sorry for? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So to, journalists to me, for sure. You really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you were having to chase things down. Like as a staffer, we were in control of what uh-huh. we did. You know, if you wanted to interview Ted Cruz or get a statement. Like, we were always in control of that. Right. Um, whereas a journalist, you're just always on the begging side of things. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess, um, did, I mean, I would hope that your time as a staffer informed your time as a journalist. Like, did, yeah. did it help you become a better journalist, better writer? Better? Um, 
Well, see, in both capacities, I was mostly doing comms and writing, so I don't think it's too much different. But just in terms of being on air at CNN, you know, I certainly see much more easily when flax are flacking, (laughs) and I'm much more comfortable calling it out because I know what's going on. So, yeah, that's it's hugely beneficial. Um, And then I guess what would you say um, the attacks, not that just Trump has made on the media, uh-huh. But it's a conservative. It is a long, long I mean, going back to Watergate, going back to Spiro yeah. Agnew and, and Nixon, conservative attacks on on mainstream media. Yeah. Um, do you think that those have been detrimental to our conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I don't like the siloing of conservative media and liberal media and all that. I think it's to Republican candidates' detriment when they think they can only go on Fox News. I actually think it's what fueled Trump, right? Trump yeah. would do all the networks, and yet people like Marco Rubio and my boss, they were kind of focused on winning the Fox News primary and just getting to those voters and kind of, we don't have to talk to anybody else. Um, that That's not good. It doesn't make the candidates better. I think you, I mean, don't go to a hostile interview, but you should be able to make your argument anywhere if you're making the right argument. Um, but... You know, we're, we're really siloed right now. And I don't, I don't know how that's going to play in 2020. Um, I was actually happy to see Eric Swalwell, the uh, Democratic congressman from California. He was on Fox the other day. And some, I, I don't know who it was, but I think a liberal journalist said, well, why would you do Fox? And he said, I can go anywhere. And I think that's important um, for for just it's a national conversation. I mean, you can go to someone that has a perspective because that's what viewers want, but you should be worried about any candidate that says, I'll never talk to Fox News or CNN. You're the one who brought up 2020. I just yeah. want to point that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that means I get to ask you. Sure. What do you think is going to happen? I, 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 Trump will run for re-election, most likely. There won't be a Republican challenger, most likely. Don't tell me John Kasich. He might, but there's no grassroots for Kasich available. As valiantly as he might try, he's been waiting for the draft Kasich movement to start for two years now. Mm-hmm. It's not starting. Um, could maybe Trump implode and Nikki Haley make a run? Absolutely. But that would require him imploding. No one is going to challenge him for that mantle unless he gives it up. So your assumption there, though, is, is that that Trump will be around in 2020. Yeah, I think that's most likely. Yeah, you think so? There, I mean— we are unfortunately well, gonna, recording it. We're, we're, we're trying to not ride the news right now. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot happening. Right. He's not going out of the White House in handcuffs. Well, no. Maybe after. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and he loves to campaign, right? And so I think this is largely a question up to the Democrats, how they decide to counter him. And they're in control of this ballgame. I threw out Terry McAuliffe a lot. A lot of people roll their eyes. But I think he would be a very, very good Trump-like. candidate. He's very Trump-like. <laughs> He's got some of the Clinton baggage. But in terms of personality— And for people who don't know why why we say that, is that he's got a big personality. Mm-hmm. He, he's a talker. And yep. he says he says shit that sometimes isn't true um, and that but sounds good. But he can good. raise money. He's governor of a purple state. Might no. be able to pull some Republican votes. I think he's the most dangerous to Republicans at this point in time. Wow. Um, he has the Clinton baggage. He's got, like, some— some stuff in his finances, but some. that didn't stop Trump. Yeah. Again, he's very Trump-like. Yes. Like, and I think having the right personality to take on Trump is probably most important. And he's been through these wars before and 
you know, he he shows up. It, it is hard to imagine Beto and Trump on the same stage. I have to say, and I'm a huge Beto fan. I yeah, I know. I know a lot of my liberal friends love Beto. I don't get it. I don't get it. I think he'd get creamed. Yeah. Well, maybe. I but mean, hey, he'd, he, be a, he'd be a good VP choice. That is true. Also, he got better at his debates with Ted. Yeah. He, yeah. he started out. Yeah, he was a little shaky. shaky. Although his decision <laughs> to use the lying Ted line on Cruz, to me, was so backwards. I mean, how can you go up and criticize Trump and then steal his one-liners? To me, that just was such a bad move. And I really questioned him as a candidate for having— Which debate was that? It was towards the end. Okay. Yeah, because— And that, he apologized funny. for it, too. And it's oh. like, you—yeah. Yeah. He yeah, said, I, I shouldn't have said like that. I feel people don't realize—like, we're going out longer than I intended, but I feel people don't realize just how um, kind of green yes. Beto is. Like, that that was—I mean, he was a great campaign. Yeah. It was an amazing campaign, but he hasn't, he's, he hasn't been through, like, no. a lot as a— as a candidate, like he yeah, actually and I has, don't think Cruz he actually, you know, he was an entrepreneur as mm-hmm. in, in addition to skateboarder and punk rocker. Like he has <laughs> like a burger eater. He has a real <laughs> life. He has a real life experience that I think is would is very appealing to can, to people on both sides mm-hmm. of the aisle. Like in the sense that he has a real life. He had a real life, like besides being a politician, unlike Ted Cruz, <laughs> um, who's never had any real world experience. Uh, he was a lawyer for. In the government, right? But, yes, but that was actually, that was part of the appeal through the Tea Party of him as a presidential candidate because he had such a strong constitutional legal background. It, I'm just telling you, it worked for him. I know. You're laughing, but it, it was very appealing it, to voters. It, it, <laughs> it'll definitely, well, okay. We're not going to make any more Ted Cruz jokes. We'll have to have you back. Amanda, thank you so much. All right, thank you. That's it for the show. Did you figure out where I thought you might be disappointed in me? It's the place where I caved, where we were talking about the association of the Tea Party with the Trump movement, how they kind of seamlessly morphed one into the other. And she was adamant that that was not the case. And I didn't have my facts and figures ready to back myself up. And I chose comfort over discomfort. I decided to let our friendship carry us past that moment rather than digging in to what we disagree about. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure why that happened. I know that it happens a lot. Not not to me a lot. I mean, it, I probably do it a lot, but it happens in the world. It's kind of unavoidable because we're human, because we're programmed to want to get along with each other, because sometimes we're tired, because sometimes we don't have the facts at our command, because sometimes we do choose comfort over discomfort, because some of us have the privilege of being able to ignore the discomfort of someone else's political beliefs. That's something this show has really taught me the privilege I have to be friends with certain kinds of conservatives, that my existence is not threatened by their political beliefs about trans people um, or abortion or healthcare. Because after all, I mean, things could have gotten even more uncomfortable with Amanda, really. I'm, I'm like, 
like 99.9% sure. If I'd really dug in on some of those issues, it would have gotten more uncomfortable and it would have gotten harder for me to ignore or take advantage of the privilege that being a straight white lady with resources gives me. And I'm embarrassed about the fact that I chose the easy way out there and I almost cut out that entire part of the conversation. But I decided to keep it in, obviously. And I decided to keep it in because you know what? It happened. Like I said, it probably happens a lot. It'll probably happen again to me. And rather than ignoring it or covering it up, I want to remember the even greater discomfort I feel now having to own my decision to take the easy way out. I want to remember the next time I am given an opportunity to take the easy way out because of my privilege, that that comfort is not going to last as long as what I'm feeling right now. So I didn't cut it out. And instead it is here for the world to see. And I'm going to try to puzzle out a little bit what happened I'm going to forgive myself anyway, and I'm going to try to do better moving on. And I can't think of a better way to end this last show of the year than with those resolutions. I'm going to try to figure out what happened, do better in the future, and forgive myself anyway. Until next week, please. Take care of yourselves. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Is there a door behind all those spiders? (laughs) It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax. You booked a Verbo. 